Get out your colored pencils, put on your smock. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 238, Phil Mershon and the Creative's Journey. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad that you've downloaded. Uh, This is going to be a great conversation. Um, If you have a chance and you are talking about the podcasts you enjoy, uh, mention halfway there. I would love to have you uh, just send a friend over and, and have them also enjoy the show. Our guest today, I'm excited to uh, just get to know him a little bit. He's, if, I don't know, friends, if you've heard about Clubhouse, but this is, we've been making lots of connections on Clubhouse since where we first connected. Um, but I'm excited to just hear more of his story. He's the founder and host of the Man in the Pew show. By day, he's a, the director of events for Social Media Examiner. He's a jazz saxophonist. He looks super cool doing that in some of his social media pictures. A songwriter, former pastor, and uh, the author of a couple of books that are coming out. I'm sure he'll tell us all about those. Our guest is Phil Mershon. Phil, welcome to Halfway There. Hey, Eric. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to have you here. And it's been fun just to get to know you a little bit over the last, I don't know, month or month and a half or so. Um, so I give that sort of, you know, those the highlights of who you are. But tell us a little more about where God has you right now. Wow, that's a, a loaded question. Mm. So, yes, it's deep waters. So. Psalm 46 is kind of a metaphor for the way life feels right now in terms of, you know, God clinging to God as a refuge and strength in the middle of life that feels like an earthquake, it feels like mountains that are quaking, and it feels like oceans that are roaring and foaming. And yet in the middle of it, God's saying, do not fear because I, the God of Jacob, am with you. Yeah. And that's like... uh, I mean, I'm not going to go into every detail of what that means, but that's where I'm at right now is um, feeling the word of God becoming increasingly important, knowing that the people of God, the fellowship that I've got with a couple of groups of guys, that's becoming way more important to me. Uh, so being present to the word, being present to the spirit, being present to people, all those things. Um, and in the middle of that, you know, knowing that no two days are going to be the same. And like, it feels like a lot of weeks that every day, certain things about our life are changing. And like one day we think we're moving another day, we think we're not moving another day, you know, those kinds of things end up being not all that important. Um, so I don't know, that's kind of yeah, what yeah. Hit me as you asked that question. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot going on in your life at the moment, which uh, I know it's true. So I'd love to hear more of your story and just kind of go back. So uh, where'd you grow up? So I was born in Illinois um, and raised in Wichita, Kansas with a couple stops along the way, including in Denver. All right. um, my dad spent a couple of years there in Denver and when he was in the army. But yeah, raised really here in Wichita, Kansas, where I live today. Um, went off to college at Wheaton College. Oh, yeah. Back to Wichita and then moved to Denver. 
yeah. in Littleton, where you are, um, worked right down the street or from where you are. I yeah, guess. you did. Yeah. That, so that was really cool when we made that connection because you and I actually worked in the same, like I worked in a building a long time later, right? But that same building as you uh, worked in when you were here, it's kind of a crazy story. That was kind of fun. And went to the same church. Yeah, and went to the same church. Yeah, which is kind of cool. So very, very exciting. Um, okay, so you grew up in, in mostly Wichita, it sounds like. Went to Wheaton. Was your family a Christian family? We were. I think my parents would have said that they were Christians. I did not become a Christian until I was around 12. So we went to several different churches. We always went to church. Funny story, like in second grade, my mom was sick. My dad was a doctor. So he was on call. And I so wanted to go to church because they had some kind of prize. And the uh, church at that point was three miles away. And I led my brother and sister. We got all dressed up. And I walked with them as if we were going to go to church. And my mom calls my dad. I'm like, seven or eight years old and says, you got to go rescue these kids. They're trying to walk to church right now. Oh, wow. So I wanted to go to church. I wanted to be in church. I understood it was important, but I didn't know who Jesus was in the story of salvation until I was around 12. What happened when you were 12? Uh, the pastor of our church, um, he just laid out the gospel very clearly before communion. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it in that way. Maybe I'd heard the words before, but I'd never really heard it. And my heart leapt kind of in that John Wesley sort of way. I said, I mm -hmm. want that. And, you know, I, there's a little bit of mixed motives. I wanted communion. I wanted to be a big boy. I wanted to take communion, but I also knew there was something in that. And then later that year at a summer camp, it really got solidified as I understood what, what I was saying yes to. Oh, yeah. Well, what happened at summer camp? How'd that go down? You know, I, I can't remember the mm. specifics more than, except that, you know, for five days, they're laying out the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And at the end of that, it's like, yes, sign me up. And I was, you know, I was so devoted to being in youth group and everything that was going on so much so that by the time I was in high school, I had a key to the church and we would go hang out there on the weekends instead of going and hanging out at the beer parties. Nice. Uh, we didn't always do nice things. Like we moved the youth pastor's uh, <laughs> office into the bathroom. You know, we, <laughs> we did some typical high school pranks, but, um, but at least it was cleaner uh, fun than uh, some of the things that I could have been doing. Yeah. Right. Well, it totally could have been into all kinds of other trouble, right? That's uh that's Absolutely. a good thing. That's funny. You know, we had a key to our church event at one point too. And I'm like, why did they ever give that to us? Oh, you'd never do that today, know. would you? No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't. But we seventeen-year-olds having a key to the church. I know that was really not okay. Possible. We we were doing karaoke before it was cool, right? And so we'd play like our favorite songs, and we uh, we just blast them as loud as we could and use the mics. It was fun, but uh, yeah, yeah, man, I would totally not do that today. Well, okay, so interesting. All right, so you sounds like you always kind of had this connection with the Lord. You gave your life to Him early. And you were you were pursuing him, and then you went to Wheaton. So Wheaton is, of course, a you know sort of evangelical uh, flagship school for sure. What um, what what was that like, and what what did you study? So I did not know it was an evangelical mecca, as we would probably call it today. When I went there, I met a, a counselor at a summer camp called Canicut Christian Sports Camps, um, oh, yeah. we went to Wheaton. And then I had a couple of friends in Wichita who had gone there. So at their encouragement, I went to check it out. Um, but I was, I was set on trying to go south, not north. 
I wanted to go to a warmer climate, not yeah. a colder climate. But when I visited the campus, it just became so clear. Even though I fell asleep in the class I visited, it put me to sleep. Um, I still knew this is where I'm supposed to be if they would accept me, you know, because highly competitive and all that. And like, I, I don't know if I've got good enough grades and all those things that they need because my ACT was good, but it wasn't great. Um, so anyway, I got there and I studied economics because I didn't know what to do. Um, I thought, you know, I'm pretty good at math. I didn't want to do a lot of writing. So this is actually pretty funny. Um, there were a couple of things I knew I didn't want to do. I didn't want to write. I didn't want to speak. I took public speaking and I failed the persuasive speech. And I said, I'm never going to speak. And I'm going to do as little writing as I possibly can. And if you fast forward to today, I would consider myself a speaker. And I've got a <laughs> book coming out this year. And I own that label as a writer. Yeah. Um, What's funny is the professors that I had did not really understand who I was. So I was in this, you know, very, I always get left brain and right brain mixed up. The analytical is left brain, right? Yep. Left brain, right. <laughs> Correct. Um, so everyone thought that I was very analytical because of that. Um, but it turns out I'm way more right brain. I'm way more creative. I just can do the left brain stuff. Oh yeah. And so, but nobody at Wheaton really understood that. And I, I looked at the amazing creative musicians and artists who are there and like, I don't compare to them. Like, I mean, there's some guys who've gone on and done amazing things. And I, I looked at the conservatory there and said, I don't want to do that. I, I want to have fun. I helped start the jazz band. When I was at Wheaton. I sang in the Glee club. Um, so I did, I stayed active in music, but it was just like, ah, this is always going to be a hobby. It's not going to be my life. Um, but I, uh, I left college because these professors said, okay, you're an economics major, you're left brain, you should go program computers. So that's what I did. My first job was I programmed computers for Boeing uh, here in Wichita, and I was good at it, actually topping my class, but I hated it. Yes. There wasn't enough people interaction for me. I was spending 95% of my time sitting in front of a computer screen and it's not like today where I can look at this computer screen like I'm doing right now and see your face. It was just like code. You know, I was programming in basic and Pascal and they had a special language I was programming in. And it's like, this isn't for me. So well, that, yeah. what, what I was curious about is, you know, you said that you kind of, had, it took you a while to figure out that you were more maybe right brained or kind of artistic than analytical. And so I can imagine, I was wondering when you figured out that that was the case and that you were like gonna gonna go more toward the artistic side what how'd that happen i would say it's been a long road mm. of understanding that and probably what makes it made it hard for me is i'm what um a career counselor called me a swiss army knife he said mm -hmm. so you are the guy that you want to take with you on a camping trip or you know entrepreneurially when you're starting a new business or starting a new church you've got like all these gifts that are great most of your tools are not ones that you would want to use repetitively like you know you don't want to use the screwdriver on a swiss army knife if you're an electrician right but if you're a handyman who just needs a tool that can help him in a pinch to do a lot of things then the swiss army knife is perfect and so i think because i can do a lot of things i can do the analytics i was good at math you know i I could have been a math major. I, I considered at least being a math minor, but the hours just didn't work out um, to get that done as well as some of the other programs that I was doing. 
So I can do that stuff and I'm pretty good at it and I enjoy strategy. But the creative thing, I think it was probably not encouraged in my family beyond just, oh, mm. yeah, you should take music and you're a good musician. And they encouraged the, the taking of lessons. But I kind of even burned out on it, to be yeah. honest, in high school, because I started at a young age. I started taking music lessons when I was in second grade. And by the time I hit 11th grade, I was like, I don't have the, you know, that desire that I saw some of my peers had. Like I, I had peers who went on to go to Cincinnati Conservatory and some of the top um, music schools in the country. And it was like, yeah, I don't have that drive. I'm good. I just want yes. to play music. I don't really care. <laughs> so I think I didn't, I wasn't around people that could see that side of me. And I think maybe one of the places that came out was the first mentor I had after I left Boeing, I went and worked for my local church for a year before I moved to Denver and a pastor there named Doug Pratt. He saw something in me. He's the one who challenged me to try speaking, even though I had bowed in college, I'm never going to speak in public again. He said, I think you got to try it. And if it doesn't go well, I'm there to back you up and I'll take over and you'll never have to do it again. But I just want you to try it. Would you be willing to just at least try it? And turned out I did well. I wasn't great at that point, but I ended up, you know, went to the seminary and preaching and I've spoken all over the country and yeah. in front of thousands of people. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. I don't do it all the time, but he saw something in me. He said, Phil, I want you every week, to set aside time on your calendar for brainstorming. I want you to use those creative muscles. He was the first person that really empowered me to say, this is something that you're good at mm. and I want you to spend time doing it. And that probably began the process of opening my brain to, okay, yeah. I've got some abilities here. I enjoy this. The ideas can really start to flow. Um, not necessarily like in the music space at that point, that was more um, toward the end of my time with Caleb project working there in Denver. I, I went and got a master's at Colorado Christian university and I was studying with um, Larry Crabb and Dan Allender and oh, yeah. working with them. I began to see that I had a passion for worship, that my musical skills were, were I was starting to see that they had a place in the church Part of it, I think, was I, I didn't see myself as being an opera singer. I wasn't. And <laughs> right. my, my orientation toward church was church musicians are all like, you know, choir, professional soloist or organist or pianist. And that wasn't me. Right. You know, I could hack my way around the guitar. I was pretty decent, but not great. Um, and I played saxophone. And I never saw, in my experience, a place for saxophone in church until I was in Denver. Oh, and then I started saying, oh look at this. There's a place for me to use my gifts in church. And maybe there's actually a way for me to use those in serving the church and serving God. Um, and I'm again, getting a, this whole vision for worship in the nations that um, you know, really started to formulate. Like I had a strong desire to see a, you know, my heart for culture, my heart for uh, missions, my heart for great art, all these things kind of coming together. And that was a, a driving force in my career and my life for probably, a, I don't know, a good decade and a half. Wow. I wouldn't say it's gone right now. It's just looks different right now because I'm in a different season. Yeah. You're doing uh, different stuff. Okay. So friends, I want to highlight something because 
uh, it's just, it matters to me. And I, what I'm hearing you say, Phil, is, you know, this pastor saw something in you and he gave you permission to develop it, right? Yeah. Friends, first of all, if you've ever had somebody do that for you, you, you know how great it is. If you see something in someone, nurture it, right? Like be that person, um, you know, and, and if you feel like maybe you have, whether it's creative gifts or whatever, whatever the thing is that God's put in your heart, pursue it, carve out that time because it matters. It's there for a reason, right? And that's one of the things that I think is so important. I think a lot about the body of Christ. We need more than just people who can get up on Sunday and give us a, you know, 45 minute exposition of scripture. I love that. We need it, but that's not the only thing we need, right? We need other, other kind of gifts because the body needs to be edified by them. So I am so grateful that, that he did that. It sounds like that sort of set you off on a, on a little bit different trajectory um, in, in terms of ministry. Is that right? Yeah, I would say, you know, probably most of us in our stories, there's key people and key moments that are like forks in the road or defining moments is a way that Bobby Clinton talks about it. And Doug Pratt was one of those defining people, but there's several instances. And that was one of them giving me permission to brainstorm, kicking me out of the boat, so to speak, to get Mm -hmm. up on stage and speak. Um, He gave a series of messages about the life of Peter. And at the end of that, he issued a call to leadership and he said, someone here, God said, get off the bench. I was that guy. Yeah. Maybe it was somebody else in the room. So you, you, to your point, you know, being available to be used of God in the life of people and you never know. Right. Like, those weren't like big things that he did for me. It was just, you know, one conversation. Hey, Phil, I want your brainstorm. Phil, would you consider trying this? I mean, no idea I'd end up going to seminary that I'd go traveling all around the yeah. country speaking that I'd be on platforms in front of thousands of people. He had no idea. That's where all that would go. He was just being faithful and he saw something. And I think, you know, how often do we do that for uh, others? Right. Being available. Well, I love that. He was faithful and you said yes. Right. And you yep. said, okay, let me try it. And those, that combination is really incredibly powerful. 100%. Yeah. So did that end up leading you to seminary? Where'd you go? It didn't lead immediately. Okay. <laughs> so pretty hilarious here. Um, the senior pastor in that church was a guy named Frank Kick. And I was doing an internship and he said during that year, he said, Phil, you need to go to seminary. You've got gifts. And I'm like, I don't need seminary. I mean, <laughs> seminary is for those who are stuck up. And I don't know what, what I really thought. I, to be honest with you, I just thought I didn't need seminary. And there's a certain sense that was probably true. Um, I wasn't ready for seminary. Uh, so I, I don't know if anybody's went, ready, but yeah, <laughs> I went to Colorado instead and spent four years with Caleb project. Then I went and got the masters of arts, biblical counseling. Then I came back here to Wichita and worked for Coke industries doing corporate training. Cause I got married while I lived in Denver. Um, I, my wife, I met through South fellowship. She came to perform on a church retreat and we met and got married the next year and realized we needed some time to start a family and just kind of figure out what our life was going to look like. So yeah, we stepped away from what I was planning to do. The plan was to go to seminary at that point. Like after I got that MA in counseling, I was going to go to seminary and get an MDiv and but that changed. So after four, three years working for Coke industries, they did a massive layoff and I went and got a music degree. So that's when I, by then I realized 
what I wanted to do was that intersection of music and arts and theology. And so I went to get a music degree first because I was finding most churches wouldn't hire me because I didn't have a music degree. So I was able to finagle my way and get a BA in music in a year plus a couple summers oh, nice. because of all the credits that I had coming in with already another bachelor's. And then I went to seminary. So I went to Reformed Theological down in Orlando. Gotcha. Um, and graduated there in 2002 MDiv with a focus on worship arts. Gotcha. Okay. So did you find seminary to be cemetery, as they always say? You know, um, yes and no. You know, I made some great friendships there with professors and some of my peers, some of the older peers, because I was in, by the time I got there, I was in my mid-30s. Uh, and a lot of the guys going to seminary were in their 20s still. Um, it depended on the class, it depended on the class. Some of the classes, the guys loved Jesus and they were deep in their theology, but they were very passionate about, you know, church planting, evangelism, worship. I mean, all these different things that they were um, encouraging me toward. So my faith did not die in seminary, like it does for some people mm. where it just becomes all about the academics. And part of that is because I did try to keep this creative element alive. <laughs> it's kind of funny though, because uh, if you know much about reformed theolo theology in that community, um, they're all about words, not so much about art. In my first year, I decided instead of writing a word-based uh, paper, analytical paper, to turn in a series of poems. <laughs> and uh, that became the talk of the campus for a while. How'd that go over? Uh, not so well. <laughs> Mostly because I didn't ask permission. I found out after the fact that if I'd have asked permission, he may or may not have. I did have other professors who allowed me to write songs in place of papers. Wow. Um, so it was encouraged, but it was like, yeah, you should have asked. Um, and that wasn't what I asked you to do. I, I wanted you to analyze the thoughts of this author, not write a poetic response to what he wrote. Um, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you took a risk. That's okay. I did. It, at least I didn't fail the class. <laughs> That's right. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Okay. So that's good. Sounds like that was a, that was a good, a good season. It was good. It's hard. We had, you know, two kids going in and we had our third while we were there. So mm. it's not easy to be in seminary with a young family. Tell me about um, it for anybody. And so it was challenging from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I got that. Okay. Uh, so where'd you go from, from there when you finished up? First church we served was in rural Georgia, a place called Lake Oconee. Um, it's actually a retirement uh, community, um, five world-class golf courses. There's a Ritz Carlton, um, but it's also in rural Georgia. So you kind of have two cultures. It's mm -hmm. a lot of people who've retired from up North and Detroit and Chicago and New York, who just wanted to escape the cold and come down and play golf and go fishing and hunting and all that kind of stuff. So we were there for only 18 months. Cause I got a call from a pastor to go help plant a church in Chicago. So we moved up there and helped plant a church in the suburbs, um, near West suburbs of Hinsdale. And mm. then, um, after three years, um, it was clear that my role there, um, had been accomplished. <laughs> so, um, to say it politely, it, it, it was, I had a sense that it was time to move on. And so then we moved to San Diego and we're part of a multi-site church called Harbor Presbyterian. 
at the time they had nine sites and oh, wow. I led worship at two of them. And, uh, but you know, the economy tanked right a year after I got there, you know, the, the great recession. And so yeah, yeah. that put that job at jeopardy. And I was working a second job uh, at a private school, just trying to make ends meet until the church could bring me on full time while the recession made that impossible. So by the end of 2009, um, the school had let me go because they had outgrown my skill set. You know, remember I'm a Swiss Army knife. They yeah. needed a specialist. They needed someone who's an accountant, not someone who can do a little bit of accounting. Right. <laughs> they needed an operations manager, not someone who just knows how to hold a hammer. Um, and so, I lost that job, and the church said, "Phil, you you really need to go find a full time gig. We can't support you, and it doesn't make sense to live in expensive San Diego on what we can afford to pay you." So. I ended up leaving during that time, my wife's dad passed away. So we moved to Florida to uh, be near her mom while I looked for a job. After six months of searching, the only job I got was a part-time job in in Denver, actually. Um, But we didn't feel comfortable taking it. Um, Moving my family to a place where there was no family for just a part-time income. I had a lot of dreams and ambitions of things I wanted to try, but it seemed foolhardy with three kids and a wife to feed. And so we moved back here. And over time, I got five gigs that I was working for about a year, um, working for Air Force as a uh, doing music for a chapel there as their worship director. I was working for social media examiner as a contractor. I was working for a private school teaching music. I was doing jazz gigs by this point. And I was working for an oil and gas guy doing research. Wow. So I was literally just doing anything I could to put money in the bank so it could put food on the table. Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? That that kind of scatters your brain a little bit. Yeah, it didn't last that long. Over time, the, the school job shifted to my mom, the oil and gas job. I didn't need it. The jazz gigs became just for fun. It was nice, you know, to earn money doing it, but it, it's hard to make a living as a jazz musician. Yeah. Um, and then, so then it became really just a, the chapel at the Air Force with a part-time gig and the work with social media examiner really took off mm. by the end of that year. And within a couple of years, it became full-time. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I do want to hear a little more about that, but I'm also curious, have you ever had a time when you felt like I was kind of far away in the middle of all that? Or what was, what was that? Tell me about that. Um, yeah. It happens almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of seasons of it, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, some of the, some of the stories there are, are hard, you know, there, there were times in Chicago of deep searching and wondering where God was, um, you know, it was, it was cool when we left that church because God very quickly provided the opportunity in San Diego. But when we left San Diego, there was a big lament because that to me was like, I could see mm. staying with that church for 20 years. Yeah. I, I honestly thought I would probably retire there. And to have that um, taken away was really hard. And so that six months in Florida looking for a job and being turned down for reason after reason of you're too experienced, you're too this, you're not enough this, you're too expensive because you got a family to feed, your your style's not right, you're whatever. Um, That was hard. That was hard, a very hard season for all of us. And I, you know, wasn't, I, I didn't feel close to God. And I wasn't a great leader in my family while I was doing that. It was just, it was challenging. It was depressing. And 
as a creative, I think I, I struggle with depressive cycles. Mm. So I've learned and I'm still learning, um, to be honest with you, how to manage it. Uh, there's, there's diet, there's, there's sleep, there's food, or I guess exercise. Um, and even the way that you think, the ways that you choose to put thoughts into your brain, what you focus on every day, that's, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that's a big part of what helps us succeed in our faith. And I got into ruts, you know, when I was leading worship for year after year, I got into ruts where it was just about picking the right song that fit this, the sermon. And I'd certainly see the spirit move, but it wasn't feeding my soul as much as it was. Isn't that cool that we created that experience? Right. Yeah. Which is, that's kind of, kind of a hard thing to do, right? Uh, You know, when you're trying to lead worship and and feeling like this is a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think everybody goes through it in their faith, but you're, um, there's highs and lows. Um, and whatever you do. Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, okay. Well, that's, that's always interesting. How, how do you kind of deal with that? So it sounds like you, you found some good rhythms maybe that help you, but I'm really curious about this for some of our creative friends, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of like you, I, I kind of skipped over this, but I'm wondering, you know, as a, as a kid, if, if you got the message like I did, Hey, get a job, grow up, get a job and stay at the company forever. Like that's pretty Midwestern message. Maybe, maybe you didn't get that The message that, you know, to be successful, um, you need to go and get a, a good paying job. Right. Although when I stepped into pursuing ministry, it's kind of a weird thing. My parents were, were very supportive and even in, the, I don't know if it's the right word to say they're proud, but they were, there was a sense of pride in seeing me pursue wanting to serve the Lord and advance the gospel. And they're incredibly supportive of that, helping me go to seminary and just really believed in me, even believed in my songwriting. My dad gave me some money to write songs for him. Wow. Um, you know, cause I just had these desires. And so I didn't feel the pressure that I needed to go get this high paying job so much, but there was a still a pressure to succeed. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. But did they push you towards the sort of non-creative side versus the creative thing? It sounds like maybe not. sounds like maybe they, they supported you creatively. No, they were, they were more hands-off. Mm, okay. I, mean, I, I kind of wish that they would have been more involved, Yeah. Um, but they were hands-off. They wanted me to make my own choices and discover my own path. And that was kind of, I feel like that was their generation because they were yeah. reacting against a different you know, set of circumstances that went before them. Well, my dad always knew what he wanted to do. Age four, he wanted to be a doctor. He became a doctor. Yeah. Um, he never really wavered from that. There was no question. His dad was a doctor. He's going to be a doctor. I thought about being a doctor until freshman chemistry. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's not for me. <laughs> no, thank you. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I, just, I was curious about that. Uh, you know, if that played a part in your kind of artistic journey there. Well, so, okay. So you ended up at social media examiner and that really, really took off. And that's, that's kind of what you're doing today. Yeah. So started doing contract work early to 2010. By the end of 2010, I was a half-time contractor. And then by end of 2011, really, I was already working full-time hours, but the company wasn't incorporated yet. So in 2012, he brought me on as a, one of the first employees of the company. I've been there ever since. It kind of grew from doing online events to 
doing a physical conference and overseeing all kinds of different products. So it's, um, yeah, the company is, the, all those events have been growing and thriving and we've been adjusting because of COVID and yeah. all those kinds of things, but it's, uh, it's been a journey, you know, it's been great because um, I've had the freedom just to work from home, work remotely and my faith in some of the side things. Cause I've, I've led worship for, six years of that. And then after I stopped leading worship, I started man in the pew. And so I've always had a side faith oriented thing going on. And the CEO is a Christian and he's been supportive of that. It's like, yeah, you should totally do that. And at least at one point in time, he was a listener to the podcast. I'm not sure if he does anymore, but he did for a while. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. That's nice to have that kind of support. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you, so you mentioned this and I'm, I'm curious, this is just my, purely from my own curiosity, but, um, which I guess that's, that's how it goes on the show on a podcast, doesn't it? Um, I, cause I found this to be true. A, a big number of the people who, when I first discovered podcasting, uh, who are believer, they're believers, but they're also like, I mean, they have businesses, they do quite well, you know, in their, in their businesses, uh, online business, but then they have this kind of philosophy of generosity that, I think is very, very biblical. Um, and, but they're also believers. And I, is that, do you find that to be true? Do you like, cause you're, you're obviously working in some of those circles. And I'm really curious about what that's like. I would say I'm, I have attracted or I'm attracted to a lot of the people in the space that I'm in, which is online or digital marketing, social media marketing. Um, I'm attracted to those people that are like that. You know, you could mention names like Ray Edwards. I'll use his yeah. name because he just wrote a book about prosperity. So, um, which I think you're interviewing him or have interviewed him. Uh, so, but there are a number of people in this space that are like that and understand that generosity is part of the way we need to live and abundance, you know, is the way that the kingdom works. So there, there are quite a few guys and i don't know it, it is interesting to note that a lot of them are are podcasters i never really oh yeah put that together but quite a few of them are <laughs> yeah well for me it was like it was like michael hyatt and cliff ravenscraft and uh like i listened to pat flynn i listened to um i don't know I'm trying to think of some of the other some of the dan other miller, people Dave dan Ramsey. miller all those guys yeah right yep joel com yep um, yeah, there's some different people out there, but yeah, all of them. hundred percent. But that generosity similar. thing, like, I, I just thought that was really fascinating. I don't know. I didn't know if you had, if you'd experienced that or no, ever noticed that. Well, I've experienced it. I don't know what to attribute it to other than the work of Christ in their life. Mm. And I think we've all experienced, you know, the growth that can happen by putting our voice out there. You know, Cliff Ravenscraft is a great example of someone who worked in a local church of a thousand people discovered podcasting through his, his passion and realized he could have an audience of 60,000 people every week by podcasting. And, you know, that just totally liberated him in some ways that were really powerful at the impact that he was able to have. Yeah, yeah. And that's been a, a big inspiration to me. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, that's cool. So where have you, where have you found in in your kind of work, where have you found more of yourself? Like what have you learned about yourself through this journey? Mm. I mean, there's, 
I go through cycles, but I think one of the things I'm realizing is there's certain parts of who I am that I can't allow to not have a way to express. For example, playing saxophone um, is symbolic of music and music is an important part of my life in that it, it helps me express faith. It's physical. So it's engaging the lungs and the body. Um, it's engaging my mind in certain ways. It's accessing some of those creative muscles. And there was a period of time during this last year where I didn't play at all. Um, part of it because of a wrist injury. Um, prior to that, I had a lung injury, so I wasn't able Ooh. to play. But recent, more recently, it was just because I was putting my efforts elsewhere. I was writing. I was doing other things. And I'm realizing, you know what? You need to pull it out, even if it's for five minutes. Just pull it out. I mean, I'm sitting here with it on my lap because I don't know mm. if there's going to be an opportunity to play while we're here. I just <laughs> I just decided to pull it out yeah, yeah. because it's sitting here. Um, so I think giving space again back to Doug Pratt giving space for those things that are important you know like the big rocks principle of Stephen Covey if you don't create the space for those things that you know are core to who you are over time they atrophy and I've, I've seen it happen multiple times through my career where that creative songwriting playing instrument aspect of who I am, I, I can slowly allow other things to take over. And it doesn't seem important because maybe it doesn't pay the bills or it doesn't pay very much. Like, you know, I might get paid a hundred bucks to go play a gig, which for some people would be awesome. For other people, it's like, you know, you're going to go spend all these hours practicing, going and getting set up. You're going to play for three or four hours. You know, I might be making 10 bucks an hour. <laughs> right. Um, it's not very much when you put it like that, but that's not, I'm realizing that's not why I do it. Yeah. Um, it can't be for the money. I, I've got to apportion the right amount of time to it. It's like, I'm not desiring to become the next Kirk Whalum where I'm making my livelihood as a saxophonist. Maybe that'll happen, but that's, that's not where I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing saying, you know what, I am a saxophonist and I do play for money sometimes, but that's just because it's nice to have, a little bit of money to keep the instruments in, you know, in check. <laughs> right, right. And, it's, and it's a motive. It's a carrot. So I think that's one thing I've learned through this process. Um, writing is another one that, you know, I, I said earlier that I made the discovery that I am a writer. It's probably six weeks ago that I said those words for the first time in front of a group of, of other writers, actually. And they said, yes, you are. Wow. You were absolutely a writer because they had just heard me read something that I'd written. And, you know, to go back and look at high school Phil, college Phil, who tried to avoid writing at all costs, fifth grade Phil, who said, um, when I was given the opportunity in fifth grade to grade myself, it was one of these, you know, innovative um, educational experiment <laughs> classes. <laughs> and the, the teachers allowed us all to give grades and he had to, to agree with them. But I gave myself A's and everything except for writing. And I gave myself a C because mm. I didn't think I was a good writer. You know, I didn't believe in myself as a writer. And I owned that for decades. And, you know, there's people along the way who said you were a good writer. They told me in seminary, Phil, you're going to write a book someday. So it wasn't like I just discovered this this year. But it's been a progression of 
getting to that place of saying I'm a writer as opposed to I'm somebody who writes. Yeah. So creating space and saying, you know, that's something I need to do regularly. Maybe it's not every day for 90 days. Cause I just did a 90 day gratitude challenge and that was a lot. Um, yeah. I probably, I don't know if I'll do that very many times. Uh, Cause that's a couple hours a day for 90 days. That's, that's a big chunk, but, but writing every day is important. Yeah. So I think some of those things, um, you know, affirmations is another. So I said it earlier, the, what you choose to think about will affect the results you get from your life. And so if I'm not choosing to think about biblical truth about who I am, if I'm not choosing to think about what God says about who I am and my identity, then I'm going to slowly believe other lies right. that are being fed to me from somewhere else, from the enemy, from the world, from my flesh. Um, so choosing to put those thoughts into my brain every day through the reading of scripture, through the saying of affirmations, which really for me are mostly biblical truths that I've just kind of put into my own words. Um, very little of it is anything other than just, this is something God's already said. I just need to personalize it. Yeah, yeah. So that's been important. And then being in community, you know, I'm part of a couple different um, men's groups who meet and pray and we're church for each other. And we go to church, but in these groups, I feel like we are church for each other. Oh, yeah. Which is an important distinction, I think, and really kind of matters, especially in this this time, right? Like, you yep. know, who who are your the people that you are at church with? Um, very very well well said there. Uh, so I wanted to talk about your podcast too. So you started it when? Uh, January twenty seventeen. Okay. It, it I got the genesis of the idea in January of twenty fifteen. I'm a, I'm kind of a slow responder in obeying God. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It took me two years to start my show, so I can relate to that. It took yeah, a while. I was on but... a beach in Florida. I, I had a blog for a few years called Call to Worship. I actually still have it. It's out there. I pay for it, yeah. but I haven't written on it in a few years. I can relate to um, that too. <laughs> yeah, it's because there's some stuff on there that people are searching for literally every every month. And they're like, okay, well, if it's adding value, I'll keep it up there. Um, but something had happened in 2014 that just took the steam out of my desire to write for that blog. And I had this sense that my days were numbered as a worship leader. It took two years for that to come to fruition, but I just had this sense that that was coming. So I was on the beach saying, God, what do you want me to do now? Do you want me to pick this back up or is there something else? And I heard the words in my head, not audibly, but in my head, man in the pew, like, huh, what does that mean? Mm. And I realized for the first time in my life, well, actually, at that point, I wasn't a man in the pew because I was still on the platform leading worship at that point. But I was thinking about the guys like Michael Hyatt, who are sitting in the pew every week, who are looking at their pastor, perhaps, and saying, you know, what? I'm a better writer. I'm a better speaker. Um, <laughs> you know, are my gifts really needed here? Not that he, I've ever heard him say that. I don't think he would. Um, but I just thought there's a lot of guys out there who maybe are feeling disconnected in the church. And especially among the digital crowd who, you know, before COVID, people like me were more rare. Now everyone has had to experience what I've been living for 10 years where I work right. from home and everyone I talk to during the day lives in a different city pretty much. And even people here in my own city, I prefer to get on a Zoom call or a telephone call versus get in the car and go see them just because of the time. It's like, do I want to go drive for 30 or 40 minutes to go see this person for 30 minutes? Or can we just get on the phone? And so yep. um, 
So I felt like that's an audience, people who want to grow in their faith, who are business leaders, business owners, who are serious about their faith. And the idea initially was to share stories from other men like that and just be an encouragement and tell those stories. That's what I did for about a year and a half. It went on hiatus just due to a lot of different personal things and life circumstances. And then I picked it back up in November of last year with this 90-day gratitude challenge. And now, now the mission is to keep it going forward um, as God's leading, you know, for sure through weekly interviews, maybe through future series of seven-minute prayers, which is something I did during the 90-day challenges. Right now, it's impossible to try to pick both back up. Um, yeah given some circumstances. So I'm just trying to be faithful to what God says to do right now. Yeah, well, that's good. So that can be found at maninthepew.com. And I'm definitely going to go and re or and listen uh, to the episode with Ray Edwards because he's one of the guys I, I love listening to. So I need to go, go check that out. But friends, you can check that out again, maninthepew.com. You're probably in the podcast app already. Go, go flip over there and do that. Uh, Phil, I really appreciate you just sharing some of your story with us and, and it's got, it sounds like God's been really faithful to you and kind of led you through, through all the, all the ups and downs and the different shifts. And, uh, that is good. Uh, is there anything you want to leave us with? You may be listening to my story and saying, wow, that's a lot. There's a lot going on. And I think what I would leave you with is a word that I say every, every day. Sometimes I don't feel like I've got what it takes to handle all the stuff that's going on. I, I don't have enough in me. And the words that stick out is, I am more than enough because God is more than enough. So that's like an anchor for me. That's why I can say, God is my refuge and strength, always ready to help in my time of need. And you may relate to like the ups and downs and the swirls and the earthquakes and all the things that are happening, or you may be a lot more stable and say, man, that guy needs some help. I do pray for me. (laughs) Um, But in either case, God is with you. God is with me. God of the Bible is more real than anything that you're facing right now. It may not appear that way at the moment, but he is in the middle of it, waiting for you on the other side of it. Amen. I love that. And he's he's always there. You're right. We, sometimes we can't see him, but he's always there. Phil, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure.